Several years ago, I was speaking in Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C., and a young man sat across the table from me. He was a junior in high school, and he said, you know, at our school, you can't read the Bible anymore. And I said, what do you mean you can't read the Bible anymore? He said, well, I was reading the Bible in my study hall period. I was sitting in our counselor's office, had a copy of it opened on my lap, and the vice principal came by and explained to me that she did not want to see that book out in her school, put that Bible up, put it in my bag, and don't bring it to school again. His eighth grade brother was, I think, sitting right beside me, and he said, yeah, you know, at our school, the Bible is treated like something that you can't access even in the library. If you were to go and type in Christianity, all of the sites are blocked that have anything to do with Christianity at our school. I said, well, can you access other sites of other religions and things like that? He said, yes, just not Christianity. Now, that was in Maryland. In fact, in some sections of the country, you might expect that a little more than others. I was talking to a group in Nashville, Tennessee, and a grandmother came up to me right outside of Nashville, and she said, my son goes to the Williamson County schools in Tennessee, and they have a drop everything and read period of time during the day when they're supposed to just get to bring anything they want to from home to read it for 30 minutes just to encourage them to read, and they get to bring anything they like. She said, my grandson brought a Bible. He's in the third grade. The teacher explained to him that he could bring any other book that he wanted, but that for drop everything and read time, he simply could not bring a Bible. Now, the irony of that is that this book is the most popular book, not in just the United States, but in the world. Ninety percent of all of the people in the U.S. have a copy of the Bible, and yet it's falling out of favor in many places. One of the reasons I believe it to be falling out of favor in many places is because Satan is trying to attack the Bible because it is so filled with information that could potentially help people that he simply doesn't want help. As we listen to songs and things that explain to us that the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to guide us safely home. That's exactly what it does. One of the things I'm going to show you this morning is something called the scientific foreknowledge of the Bible. And what I mean by that is simply this. The Bible contains information that the writers on their own simply could not have known. In fact, so accurate is the information that sometimes we didn't learn about its significance until 3,000 years or so after the Bible or the section of the Bible that we're discussing was written. Let me tell you why that is so very significant. Did you know that not only is there not a factual discrepancy in the Bible, not only is there not a contradiction, but there's not a single mistake in the Bible, scientifically speaking, in any type of medical practice, in any type of geographical statement, in any type of geological statement. Everything that the Bible says scientifically is exactly right and has always been. Now, I'm going to show you how remarkable that is as I illustrate it this way. Darius the Mede was a king that lived several hundred years ago, and he had two physicians that waited on him who were Egyptians. And the reason that he had hired two full-time Egyptian physicians 
is because around the time of Moses, the nation of Egypt was recognized as the most educated, best physicians in the entire world. And so if you wanted the best physicians in the world, then you hired Egyptians to take care of you medically. We have found a papyrus called the Ebers papyrus. Ebers papyrus is really interesting. It's got about 650 different prescriptions from the Egyptians about the time of Moses, a little bit before. And it tells us how they healed people. Now, I'm putting healed people in quotation marks because what you're going to find out is that a lot of the stuff they did didn't heal people. In fact, out of about 650 prescriptions or so, about a third of them did nothing to you. It's just totally neutral. You would go to a doctor, you would pay that doctor money, and he would tell you to do this or that. You would go home and do this or that, and it wouldn't help you, but it wouldn't hurt you. Another third of those were actually very beneficial, about 200, 220 of them or so. They were prescriptions that would help you get over your ailment. They had medicines that were beneficial to your health. Now, another third of them, about 210 or so, were prescriptions that not only were they not neutral, and not only were they not helpful, but they would hurt you. In fact, sometimes they would hurt you very, very badly. You see, the Egyptians had some miscalculations when it came to medicine. They thought infection was great for you. And so if you went into a Egyptian physician, and you had a bad splinter that you couldn't get out yourself, they had a prescription for that, and here was their prescription. They said, you need to wrap that up in a poultice of worm blood and donkey dung, and that will help generate pus. And pus is great for you. It helps you get better. It helps your life in many ways. And so as much pus as you can generate, the better you're doing Now, as a 21st century observer, we look at that malpractice and we say anybody that would prescribe that today would get sued and they would lose everything that they have because you might not know the technicalities of what's going on, but you would know that you don't want to stick a poultice of worm blood and donkey dung on any type of open wound. And here's why. Because it just so happens that worm blood and donkey dung are full of tetanus spores. And they were injecting tetanus into the patients who came to them for splinter removal. And so not only were they not helping these people, and not only were they leaving them alone with a neutral prescription, but they were literally killing their splinter patients. And we look at that and we think, I cannot believe that a culture would be so ignorant as to have killed their own People with these malpractice suits. And that was in, what, 1500 B.C. Well, if I were to ask you how did our president die, the very first president of the United States, you might be able to tell me, George Washington, in 1799, at the very end of 1799, right as it turned into 1800, George Washington was outside on a walk. It was a cooler fall to winter evening, as I understand it, and he caught a chill. They brought him back. The physician was called. The physician said, yes, he's got a chill. You know what we need to do to him? We need to bleed him. His blood is obviously bad. That's why he has a chill. And so they prescribed for him what had been being prescribed for the last hundred years or more or so. They bled him. And what I mean by bled him is they took his blood out of him. 
They had a couple procedures for that. Sometimes they would actually put leeches on people to remove their blood. Other times they would just cut a very large X shape in one of the main arteries or veins right there in the elbow, and they would take as much blood as they could out, and then they would bandage it up and say, okay, that should help him. You think that helped our first president, George Washington? No, you know better than that. Can you believe people in 1800, only 200 years ago, were bleeding people to death? And that's literally what they were doing, bleeding them to death. You know, what's interesting about that is I was talking to my barber who cuts my hair, Lex, at Hats Off Barbershop, and he said, yeah, I went through barber school, and we understood lots about that because barbers originally were minor surgeons. You could come in, you could get a shave, you could come in and have a tooth pulled, or you could come in and get bled if you were not feeling good. And he said that's why the barber pole is what it is because of the red and white stripes and then later the blue because of the, to indicate arteries. He said one of the reasons that it was red and white initially was because you would come in, you would get bled or a minor surgery would be done. The barber would take the towels and wash them, but lots of times there would be a pinkish tinge to them because they wouldn't get all of the blood color out. Then they would wring them and slap them around their columns outside of their buildings and when they would take them off they would slap them around there to dry when they would take them off it would leave red and white stripes and so that's where the barber pole indicator came from he said used to when we went to real barber school he's all about these new barbers that hadn't really been to barber school but he said used to when there was real barber school that's what we learned interesting up until about the 1850s we were bleeding people to death. Now, the Bible says that Moses was educated in all of the ways of the Egyptians. You would expect Moses to get some stuff right if he was just writing humanly devised information, but you'd expect him to get some stuff wrong. And let me tell you what I mean by that. We look back at the Egyptians, and we look back at the people who were bleeding people to death, and we think, they can, can you believe that? And yet we have filled factories with a substance called asbestos because we thought it was a great idea because it didn't burn very well. It was a flame retardant. And we thought this is going to save people's lives. And literally we have killed hundreds of thousands of people because we didn't understand what asbestos does. If you were to look at what was going on just 20 or 30 years ago, we were prescribing medicine to pregnant women that they were taking, thinking they were helping their babies, and lots of times that medicine was causing their babies to be born without a limb or two sometimes. And that was just 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Let's not think that we've got it right because in 50 years, people are going to look back at what we've been doing and calling it medicine and they're going to see how advanced a lot of our medicine has been and how great some of it is. And they're also going to see how many mistakes we've made. And yet, and yet the Bible's never made a single mistake in any type of medical or scientific statement that it's ever made. Let me show you what I mean by that. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Leviticus chapter 17. And in Leviticus chapter 17, you're going to read a statement that makes perfect sense to you as a 21st century observer. But as I just mentioned about what was going on in the time of George Washington's day, it didn't make a lot of sense to them. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, you're going to read this statement. 
For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement. Now look in verse 14. For it is the life of all flesh, its blood sustains its life. Now, if it were the case that we properly understood that statement, we would not have been bleeding people to death all the way up until about the mid-1850s. We would have understood that the life of the flesh was in the blood. Moses wrote a statement that there's no possible way he could have understood the significance of because we didn't understand it until 1850, some 3,300 years after he wrote it. Now, that's one example. The fact of the matter is I could stand up here and do this for you all morning long. We're not going to do that. I'm going to give you one or two other examples, then we're going to make some application. But the fact that the Bible doesn't have a single medical or scientific mistake separates it from every humanly devised writing ever penned. Let me give you another example. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 19. And in Numbers chapter 19, I want you to just put your finger there in Numbers 19. Maybe put your marker there. And I'm going to tell you something that happened in 1847. As you're moving to Numbers 19, let me explain to you the historical discovery of something very important. In 1847, there was a man by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis. Ignaz Semmelweis wanted to be a doctor who delivered babies. And so he went to Vienna, Austria to go to the most advanced medical facility in the area to learn how to be a doctor. In fact, he did so well and advanced so quickly that he became a doctor and they put him in charge of the Division I lying-in unit in Vienna, Austria. Now, the Division I lying-in unit in Vienna, Austria was a massive hospital ward where doctors and medical students delivered babies. The Division II lying-in unit in Vienna, Austria, was a little bit smaller ward where midwives delivered or took care of the babies. And in Vienna, Austria, in 1847, there was a serious problem. The serious problem was that they were losing 18% of all of the women and children that came into the clinic. Now, 18% is one out of every six. So you start one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five. You start taking one out of every six of the people in this audience, well, you realize that 18% is a massive death toll that is going on in 1847. As they talked to people from other countries and cities, Paris, London, etc., they were all losing about 18% of theirs too. In fact, in the summer, sometimes the death rate was, you're looking at 25 to 40%. Looking at four out of every ten women that came in to the clinic and their children died. They all died of the same thing. They all died of labor fever. They would have pus in their eye sockets and their chest cavities under their skins, etc. All died of labor fever, sometimes 40%. Now, Semmelweis was so torn by how many people were dying, he thought, I've got to find the answer to this. And he went to the higher-ups and he said, hey, why are these women dying? 
I said, well, it's a miasma. And he said, a, a miasma? What is that? I said, well, it's a big dark cloud of bad luck that sits over your city. He said, a, a dark cloud of bad luck that sits over your city? They said, yeah. If you happen to come in and give birth, when the cloud's thicker, we got a 40% casualty rate. If it's a little bit thinner and there's not quite as much of it, then we got an 18% casualty rate. But it's always there. It's just a big cloud of bad luck. Well, you know, as he started talking to Paris and London and various different places, they were losing 18 to 40%. He thought, do you mean to tell me that there's big clouds of bad luck all over the cities, all over the world? That just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think that's true. I'm going to try something else. And so he started trying to identify what was causing the death of 18% of his women in his clinic. He thought maybe that the bell that the priest rang early in the wee hours of the morning was scaring the women to death. That's what he thought. So he said, from now on, if any priest comes in after 10 o'clock, they cannot ring a bell. No bells, because I think you're scaring these women to death. Cut the bell out. Death rate dropped ridiculously to 18%, sometimes 40 Of course, that had nothing whatsoever to do with it. He would come in the next morning, and you think about this. You think about a perfectly healthy, beautiful woman coming in who is about to have a child. She is excited about the birth of her child. She comes into the clinic doesn't look like a single thing is wrong with her, doesn't look like there should be any complications whatsoever, and four days later, she and her child are dead. He probably welcomed her into the clinic, talked to her, got her name, knew who her husband was, everything looked like it was going great, and four days later, she's dead. It was literally driving him crazy. He was thinking about all of these women that came into the clinic looking perfectly healthy. In fact, the women in the city knew that Division I lying in unit was such a death trap that they would try to give birth in the gutters of the street so that they would be taken to Division II where the midwives were because if you had your baby just before you got to the clinic, you went into Division II. Well, he said, okay, it's not the bell. It's got to be something else. We need to turn all the women on their side. They're laying on their back. Maybe that's killing them. Death rate dropped to 18%, 40%. He said, all right, maybe we need to lay them all on their back. Death rate, nothing. No change. You start to see that the stuff that he's trying to identify just simply is not the reason for this labor fever that's killing all of these women. In fact, it was driving him so crazy that they sent him on a three-month sabbatical. They said, Semmelweis... You're going nuts. You've got to get out of here. You've got to take some time off. You've got to rest. He went on a three-month sabbatical, came back, and one of his best friends and doctors had died, a man by the name of Dr. Kolechka. He asked him, he said, how did Dr. Kolechka die? He said, well, we'll tell you this. This is what happened. He said he was doing an autopsy on the body of one of the women who had died in the clinic. And one of the freshman students somehow elbowed him him or caused him to cut his finger. Said it was just about an inch cut on his finger, didn't look that bad, but within two weeks he died. Well, Simmelweiss said, what did he die of? They said, well, I mean, it had all the same symptoms as labor fever. That's what it looked like. He said, really? 
And then he went one morning to the clinic and he saw that the medical students and doctors did autopsies in the morning. They all washed their hands in a bowl of water, lots of times with no germ-cleaning agent in it whatsoever, dried their hands on a dirty towel, and then proceeded to do examinations on live women. Now, as a 21st century observer, you're looking at that scene knowing exactly what's going on, aren't you? Well, Semmelweis said, you know what I think is happening? I think we're passing something from the dead bodies of the women to the live women, and I think we're passing this labor fever somehow to these live women, and that's what's killing them. People said, you're an idiot. That's not what passes death. You can't pass a disease like that. He said, I'll tell you what, maybe not, but in my clinic from now on, every single person is going to wash their hands in a chlorinated vat of water and is going to dry their hands on a clean towel. Every time any woman comes in here and leaves, we're going to change the bedclothes and make them clean bedclothes for every new patient that comes in. You do not touch a live woman in my clinic without washing your hands with chlorinated water. They called him Dr. Clean Freak, said he was a wacko, said the whole clinic now smelled like ridiculously stinking chlorine. In fact, the higher-ups said that they weren't going to pay for it because it was such a ridiculous idea. So he took it out of his own pocket, if I understand it correctly, and made every single person in his clinic use chlorinated water. What do you think happened? Yeah, death rate dropped to about 1%. A couple of the women that did die, he traced it back to several of the students who didn't really want to wash their hands thoroughly, and so they just acted like they did, or one or two of the nurses that didn't want to change the sheets like he had told them to. He was screaming at people, explaining to them that they were murdering these women if they didn't wash their hands. Thought he was crazy. In fact, the higher-ups, after he dropped the death rate to 1%, said... Glad that miasma moved out. In fact, Simmelwise, you're crazy. You've gone kind of insane. You've made everybody mad. You've yelled at everybody. We're firing you. So they did. Fired him. Kicked him out of the Vienna Division I lying in unit. Sent him back to Budapest, where he originally hailed from. Put him in a little clinic in Budapest. They were having the same problem. Dying about 9 to 18% of their people were dying that came into that clinic. He implemented the exact same procedures in Budapest, got the exact same results. Death rate dropped to below 1%. You would have thought that Semmelweis would have been a hero. He was not. If I understand it correctly, he spent the remainder of his days sending his results to people all over the world trying to get them to see that they were passing labor fever from dead bodies to live women without effect. None of them listened to him, and people didn't recognize Semmelweis' discovery until years after his death. Now that was 1847, looking at about 160 years ago or so. Oh, now we're in Numbers, which was written in about 1450 B.C. And in Numbers, you're going to read stuff that at first sounds really kind of weird. I mean, why in the world would Moses explain to the children of Israel they need to do this kind of stuff? Let me show you verse 5. You're going to take a heifer, a red heifer that's never been worked, and you're going to burn it right there in verse 5. You're going to burn its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal. And then look at verse 6. 
you're going to take some cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and throw them into the middle of the fire where the heifer is burning. All right, and then what are you going to do? Well, as you proceed after these statements, you see that then you're going to collect the ashes of this heifer, scarlet, cedar wood, and hyssop, and you're going to store them in a clean place outside of the camp. And then what are you going to do with them? Well, notice what happens then. Look in verse 11. You take these ashes, you put them in water, and then you take a plant called hyssop and you dip it in this ash water mixture and you basically paint it on a person. Who has done what? Well, look at verse 11. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he'll be clean. But if he doesn't purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Notice the next verse. Anybody who touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean. Now, notice in verse 18. A clean person shall take hyssop, dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on the vessels, on the persons who were there, or any who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. Real simple. Right, you take this ash mixture, you put it in water, you take hyssop, you dip that hyssop in this water-ash mixture, and then you put it on a person, and you do that on the third day after they've touched somebody that was dead, and on the seventh day after they've touched somebody that was dead. And if you don't do this, they never get back in the Israelite camp ever. Interesting. You know, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think, well, that's kind of a bunch of kind of religious ceremonial mumbo-jumbo that we don't really understand. Well, let's break this down. When I was in about the fourth or fifth grade and I went to see how the early American settlers made soap. Maybe you remember that. They didn't go to Walmart and buy soap. You couldn't get any ivory back then. You needed something that would clean, but they didn't have a store to buy the soap. And so how would they make it? Well, maybe you remember how they made it. They would take ashes from some type of wood that would burn, and they would take those ashes, they would put them in a funnel, and they would let the rain water pour through those ashes, and underneath that they would place a container where they would catch the rain water ash mixture. And it would have a very high concentration of lye in it. And that lye then they would take and put in a vat of animal fat most of the time. They would stir it up and they would let that animal fat sit and they would cut it up into blocks and then they would use that for their soap. Do you know what's going to happen if you take the ashes of this heifer, cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet and you put it in water? What substance that's going to form there in the water? Lye. So you're effectively making a lye soap mixture. Then, just so happens that, you know, sometimes when you get really, really grimy and dirty and your regular bar of soap just won't cut it, you need something that's a little bit stronger. And so the mechanics know that you go to the, the two soaps that I know that are a little bit stronger. You go to Gojo or Fast Orange. Now, what's the texture of Gojo or Fast Orange? Kind of gritty. It gets underneath your fingernails. It gets in your fingerprints there all around the little parts of your hand that that regular soap just doesn't get into. You remember wearing uh, wool pants when you were a little kid? 
I mean, you only wore them when you were a little kid because once you got to make your own decisions about what you wore, you didn't ever wear wool pants up next to your skin anymore. Because if you get a little hot in wool pants, you start getting itchy and scratchy. What's going to happen if you take scarlet wool and you put it in a fire and it burns it into little bitty fibers and then you throw it in water and you put that water on a person? Oh, you're going to have to scrub to get those little wool fibers off of you because they're going to be kind of irritating. And so you've got water here that has lye in it. Now it's got little wool fibers that are kind of irritating that you need to scrub to get off. And then it needs to be applied by using a plant called hyssop. And hyssop was burned into this mixture. Just so happens that hyssop has an alcohol in it called thymol. Now, to put that in a little bit more perspective, I don't know if you've ever used any Listerine. Now, when I was growing up, my dad used Listerine, and I thought, you know what? That looks so cool to use Listerine. I thought, I'm going to try that. You know, my dad's breath smells so good after you use some of that Listerine, I'm going to give it a shot. So I, I got me some Listerine, and I turned it up, and I held it in my mouth for about .02 seconds. Listerine is meant to burn your mouth to pieces. You know what is burning your mouth to pieces in that Listerine? And alcohol, you know what alcohol it is? If I understand it correctly, it's thymol. You know what it's doing when it's burning your mouth? It's killing germs in your mouth as it burns. That burning feeling is it working on killing germs. So you've got lye, you've got thymol, and tiny little fibers of wool that are in the water of purification that you have to use on the third day, and then you have to wait three days so you will completely dry out so that any bacteria that might still be alive will die because bacteria has to have warm, moist places. And then on the seventh day, you wash with that water of purification again, and then only then do you touch anybody who's alive. Now, in a very real sense, listen to me close. If in 1847 they didn't have chlorine and they just used the prescription that you just read in Numbers 19, would it have saved the lives of those women? Yes, it would have. Saved the lives of every one of those women if they would have used the same procedure Notice it said, not only do you wash the person that touches a dead body, but you wash the clothes of anything that touched a dead body and the places where that dead body has been. You wash it all exactly like we do today. Now, we have a better understanding even of germs now than this reveals as far as stuff that will kill it like chlorine, but you could have saved the lives of literally millions of women and children if you would have prescribed the exact same prescription from Numbers chapter 19 to the hospital in Vienna, Austria, and it was 3,000 years later. You see what I'm trying to say? That's two examples of what we could do all morning long. Now, it's one thing to save a person's life. You know, as we see that and we think about a way that the lives of these women could have been saved, we think, wow, if people would have just listened to what the Bible was saying, if you would have implemented that same practice, Semmelweis and all of his co-workers could have saved thousands of people in Vienna and people in London could have saved thousands of women in London and Paris. Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, he said, I'm calling heaven and earth as witness against you today 
that I am placing before you two paths. The path of life and blessing or the path of death and cursing. Choose life. Now, how in the world would anybody understand that this could literally save the lives of thousands of women and we say, you know what? I wouldn't really care. You know how it is kind of complicated? I mean, the whole water purification bit, you got to burn that heifer, then you got to store the ashes. Somebody's got to put those ashes in water. It just seemed like a lot of trouble. I mean, yeah, I know that we could probably save thousands of women's lives, but, I mean, who, who really wants to do that? Let's just skip it. You can't imagine a person saying that. In fact, if we were dealing with physical life, every one of us knows that anybody who would skip the work that it would take to save the lives of thousands of women is criminally negligent, and we would sue them for everything they had or throw them in prison. And yet, and yet we've got a book right here that has the prescription for spiritual life, that has the prescription to save a soul from death. And are we so complacent that we don't feel the need to, number one, obey it, or after we have obey it, to spend our lives spreading it in the hopes that we might save some people. Semmelweis spent the rest of his life writing letters and having a campaign to try to save people's physical lives. And yet we're dealing with something that is far more important than a person's physical life. We're dealing with something that saves their soul. And Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. He said there's one thing in this whole spiritual realm that saves a person's soul. There's only one thing. That's the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Have you been saved by coming in contact with the blood of Jesus and obeying the gospel? If you have, have you become apathetic about those around you who are perishing, who are literally dying outside of the blood of Jesus? If you need to respond to the invitation this morning, if you need to come to Jesus believing in Him with all your heart, confessing that belief, repenting of your sins, being buried in water baptism for the forgiveness of those sins. If that's something you need to do today, let's get it done. If you need to respond because you have become a Christian, you have been saved, but you've wandered back into the world, you've gone back to the old ways of death and destruction, and you need to repent of that and change? Is that something you need to do? If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, in any way, hope you'll do that as we stand and as we sing.